This is episode number 377 with Chief Data Scientist at Metis, Dr. Deborah Beravishes. Welcome to the Super Data Science Podcast. My name is Kirill Eremenko, data science coach and lifestyle entrepreneur. And each week we bring you inspiring people and ideas to help you build your successful career in data science. Thanks for being here today. And now let's make the complex simple. Welcome back to the Super Data Science Podcast, everybody. Super excited to have you back here on the show. We've got a very cool episode coming up. Today's guest is Dr. Deborah Beravishas, uh, who is the chief data scientist at a company called Metis. If you haven't heard of Metis before, uh, this is a great company that provides all sorts of boot camps and trainings to individuals and companies in the space of data science. And uh, Deborah is uh, the chief data scientist there, so she structures all those curriculums and helps enterprises understand how to best train their teams. So what we're going to be talking about today is going to be uh, separated into two parts. And the first part is actually going to be quite different from data science training. It's actually going to be focused on women in STEM, a very important topic of how women can get into and succeed in the fields of science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. And Deborah is very passionate about the space, and I think everybody should be aware, at least aware of the space, or uh, even a better case scenario, do something to help make this uh, space as welcoming and as um, amazing for absolutely everybody who wants to enter the space. And Deborah is going to share her story and her passion, and uh, she has actually lived this story coming from Mexico and always wanting to study physics and uh, science and uh, being uh, having bias against her in because she was a woman in these uh, fields. So I think it's a great, I found it to be a great story for to experience the emotions that somebody actually goes through on their way. So if you want to educate yourself in the space of women in STEM, uh, definitely this first part of uh, the podcast is going to be very helpful in that space. Uh, you'll learn about uh, mentoring uh, women in STEM and how what Deborah is doing in that space, uh, the fixed mindset versus the growth mindset, being brave, not being perfect, how and how business as a business owner, if you're a business owner, how you can actually promote a uh, safe and inclusive working environment in the spaces of STEM, such as data science, in your organization. And in the second part of the podcast, we're going to be talking about data science and data science training. We'll touch on topics such as critical thinking, true data literacy, training curriculums for companies, the future of data science, and data science silos, especially that last part about data science silos and what that means, not silos within an organization, but what kind of silos will emerge in the data science industry in the future, in the coming five or 10 years. I found that very insightful, a very... Um, vivid description of the future of data science that we can anticipate. So very excited about this podcast. Lots of valuable information, both from a community perspective and also from educating yourself on the topics of data science. And I can't wait for you to check it out. So without further ado, I bring to you Chief Data Scientist at Metis, Dr. Deborah Berevicius.
Welcome back to the Super Sense Podcast, everybody. Super pumped to have you back here on the show. And today we have special guest calling in from New York City, Deborah Berevicius. Deborah, how are you going today? Hi, Kirill. Thank you for having me on your podcast. Super, super excited to have you. Um, uh, first of all, I want to ask you, Berevicius, you mentioned the surname is Lithuanian. Tell us the story behind that, because it doesn't sound Mexican at all. Yes. Uh, my grandparents were uh, from Lithuania. They were Jewish and they escaped when the conditions in Eastern Europe were not uh, very good, especially for Jewish people. And so they actually tried to go into New York. But New York City, uh, I believe, closed the immigration doors in 1929 mm. or so because so many people were coming from Europe. And so the boats uh, came to Ellis Island in New York. There's a museum there. And then they, they were put in quarantine and they veered down eventually to go to Mexico, which was at the time this golden city, especially Mexico City, was just this beautiful uh, city that needed uh, hardworking people, you know. And so they opened the doors and people came there and they probably thought, oh, we'll make it to New York in a few years. We'll work hard here and then we'll we'll move up north. But the conditions were so good. They created a community and schools and just the second generation was able to go to university already. And, and, and Mexico was really uh, noble and it treated people very, very well at the time. And so they, they, they formed that. And so my last name was originally something like Berebechik, something like that. But when they emigrated to Mexico in the uh, registration port in Tampico, they switched the name, the ending to EZ, e, like making it, trying to make it more Mexican, like Perez, Gonzalez, Perevices. Mm -hmm. uh, Sanchez. Yes, exactly. But of course, it didn't really work well. And so now it's this mishmash of Lithuania, Mexico. And uh, yeah, so, you know, nobody knows exactly how it should be pronounced. <laughs> uh, awesome you should have you done the uh, dna test like for his uh, family history it's a fascinating thing and i should do it i know my dad did it before he mm. passed away and i have to check he did it with 23 and me and i have to check if i'm able to access his records uh because he's of course a family member but because he's uh deceased May he rest in peace. Like I don't know if I'm able to legally access because I would like to know, um, mm -hmm. you know, where we're from and collect all the historical information for my family. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And you should do it as well. Like it's very interesting. You have a very diverse family tree. Um, and uh, so Mexico. And uh, what? At what age did you move to New York? Well, New York is maybe 12 years ago, but I moved to the U.S. way before that. Oh, okay. I, I grew up in, as I shared, as part of the Jewish community in Mexico City, which was a, a very nice place to come of age, but it was also a very conservative place. Both Mexico mm -hmm. and the Jewish community tend to be quite conservative and so I was told from a very young age that I shouldn't consider a career in physics and math, which were the things that I was curious about. I was told that since I was a girl, I better pick something more feminine, like mm. communications or art. And so I, I was uh, 
I felt like I was rejected by society and I had to change my desires to know about the universe and the world. I had to always hide my uh, dreams of becoming a physicist. So it, it was not until college uh, that, and in fact, after two years of college in Mexico, that's when behind everyone's back, I applied to schools in the U.S., so that I could become a transfer student and, and continue and pursue, finally, my dream of becoming a physicist. Mm -hmm. Wow. wow. What, what got you so excited about physics? Why were you into it so much? I don't know. I was an extremely inquisitive child, and I still am. Like I ask questions about everything, and I'm very curious about why the world works uh, the way it does. Uh, I'll give you an example. My husband is also a physicist. He's a professor. And so we spend, uh, you know, endless hours discussing why that effect happened with the water on the table or, uh, you know, when our kids do something, we try to explain it through what I call physics glasses. Like we just mm. put on those principles and critical thinking skills that allow you to see the, the world in mm. a way uh, that uh, wants to be generalized so that you can say, which is exactly what physics does, right? It abstracts certain principles that are applicable everywhere in similar situations. Mm -hmm. And so we're, we, you know, we're able to say like this happened because of the angular momentum or our son slipped in the kitchen because <laughs> of the density of the particular oil that my daughter mm -hmm. dropped or whatever. Interesting. And so, uh, with this uh, interest in physics, you were at the same time back in Mexico told that this is not a career path that you should pursue. How did that feel? I learned, Kirill, with time to hide my love for math and physics. And that made me very insecure. I thought mm. I had absolutely no skills. I remember that I did take uh, calculus in high school, but it was not only at home that I was told. My mother told me, don't ever let the boys know that you like physics because uh, they'll be intimidated and you may not able to get maybe not be able to get married. It almost happened. But uh, <laughs> I, I was told also by the teachers in school and then the counselors that were hired to tell us what career path to take after high school also told me, you're very curious, so you should study philosophy because it mm. asks a lot of questions. And what I had learned is that uh, my desire uh, to do physics was not something that I could just put uh, down and, and hide somewhere. The hunger to know about the world in, in a mathematical sense was not going to go away. So I would read historical books about obscure physicists like Tycho Brahe, a Danish astronomer who apparently lost his nose in a duel because he was not a very sociable person. But nevertheless, he did incredible observations of the sky. And from his observations that Kepler apparently stole at some point, the laws of planetary motion were derived. So he did incredibly useful data science and physics uh, research that, that gave us one of the most incredible insights about our, our universe. And so I thought, maybe I'll be like Tycho Brahe. Nobody will like me. I'll be locked up in some observatory, but I'll have my science and my, my observations with me. 
And so I had my my heroes, my silent heroes like that. And then when it came time to go to college, I went to philosophy in Mexico. And I I was sure that uh, that was going to be it, that I wasn't going to be able to move because I knew that universities in the U.S. cost eight times what they were cost in Mexico City at the time. Uh, I was going to a private university and, and uh, my parents probably couldn't afford sending me to a university in the U.S. So after two years of philosophy behind everyone's back, I started applying to schools in the U.S. because I had learned that in the U.S. you could do more than one major. That is mm. a liberal arts education, which would have allowed me to also venture into physics. And so uh, what I did is I applied and I got an email back from Brandeis University, a small, great school in Massachusetts that said, you know, you have great essays and very good grades and we, we can feel your passion coming out of your essays. Uh, if you take these extra exams and write uh, a, a, a sort of mission statement about why you want to do physics, we'll let you, uh, uh, we'll, you'll be considered for a scholarship. So they actually ended up giving me a full scholarship to attend Brandeis University. So within a few months, my life completely changed. And I flew to Boston. I had never seen the snow. I flew in the middle of the winter and I mm. arrived at Brandeis. And it was the beginning to a completely new life. Mm -hmm. And I'll tell you the story because I think it's, it's a, a good story for your listeners I decided to take, to have the courage to take a very generic course my first semester in astronomy because I was fascinated about the night sky and the stars and how the planets move and all that. And I was very intimidated by physics and math because I had been told for many years that I couldn't do it. So I sat in the very back of the class and there was a teaching assistant who was a graduate student in physics by the name of Rupesh. He came from India. And Rupesh and I became very good friends. We would walk around campus and discuss well beyond uh, the topics of the class. And I would ask lots of questions and I would want to know everything about thermodynamics and quantum mechanics and, and planetary motion and so on. So Rupesh told me, you know, you're not the typical student that wants to just do uh, good, get good grades and do well in the homeworks and whatnot. You really have a desire and a passion. And that's the most important thing. So, you know, you should consider maybe going into physics. And I said, no, but I, I, I only have two more years left in my scholarship because I was a transfer student and I can't pay uh, to stay an extra year. So one day we were walking in Harvard Square and I had tears in my eyes. We sat under a tree and I looked at Rupesh and I said, Rupesh, I just don't want to die without trying, without mm. trying to do physics. I'll probably not succeed, but I want to give it a try. So Rupesh got up and called uh, from a payphone. We didn't have cell phones at the time. He called uh, the chair of the physics department, who was his advisor, Dr. Wardle. And he said, I have a student here who only has two more years at Brandeis. She just got here as a transfer student. She would love to switch from philosophy to physics or add it as a major. The chair of the department called me into his office and he said, someone else has done this many years ago. Ed Witten, who, by the way, is the father of string theory, 
mm. uh, you know, very famous man, clearly a genius, switched at Brandeis from history to physics. And so the, we know that it can be done. And I was like, oh, he's pulling my leg comparing <laughs> to Ed Witten. But he handed me a book, which at the time was an alien language for me. The book was called Div, Grad, and Curl, Vector Calculus in Three Dimensions. And he said, if in two months, by the end of the summer, you are able to master this material, we'll make you take a test and we'll let you skip through the first two years of the physics major so that you can enter in your junior year and from then uh, you know, you can just cram the rest of the physics major into two years. Rupesh believed in me so much that he decided to become my mentor. And he dedicated his entire summer to mentoring me and tutoring me. So every day from 10 in the morning till 9 p.m. at night, we spent time together learning everything from books. And I didn't have time to learn all the theory, but it was like Saturday derivatives, Sunday integrals. Monday, first three chapters of classical mechanics, and so on. At the end of the summer, Rupesh disappeared so that I would really uh, do this on my own. I took the test and I passed. Mm. So I entered my first physics class was already a junior level class. And I remember trying not to burn too many capacitors in the electronics lab. Mm. And it was just incredibly challenging but I managed to graduate with highest honors and summa cum laude with a degree in both philosophy and physics from Brandeis because I persevered so much. And that taught me that hard work is what gets people to the end in, in their path, not uh, innate talent. Although there's obviously some of that um, was there as well. But the incredible thing about Rupesh is that I always wanted to pay him for all that he did for me. I wanted to pay him for his tutoring and mentoring. And he said to me that when he was growing up in Darjeeling in India, like the tea, uh, there was an old man who used to climb up the mountain uh, and teach him and his sisters the tabla, which is a musical instrument, English and math. And the old man said, no, you can't pay me. The only way you could ever pay me back is if you do this with someone else in the world. And Kirill, that's how my mission in life began to become that, uh, pass the torch of knowledge, so to speak, and become that person that inspires other minority students, especially women who, like myself, feel attracted to STEM, but who for some reason, whether it be financial or social, feel that they cannot achieve their dreams. And that's uh, when it all started. I then went back to Mexico and uh, realized that I wanted to continue to to study physics. It wasn't enough to get my BA. And I went back to an environment that told me, okay, you did your crazy thing. Now it's time to settle down. (laughs) Uh, You know, you got your your degree and now it's time to get married and have a family and and stay uh, home and and, uh, possibly not get a job in physics. And I was just really sad because I wanted to pursue more. My, my curiosity was just infinite. And so I decided again to apply to schools, uh, universities in the U.S. so that I could pursue my PhD. And one day I went to, I was studying a master's degree at the public university, UNAM, in physics um, at, at UNAM. 
And I, I went to my advisor's office and I told them, you know, I think I want to move to the U.S. back again because the kind of physics that I want to pursue my PhD in, uh, they have better resources there. It's experimental and the labs are able to purchase incredible equipment. And there's, you know, some people doing amazing research. And so I applied and he said, okay, so where did you apply? I said, well, there's a guy, I just said it like that. There's a guy at Stanford. Uh, I just heard about this university called Stanford that my friends applied to. Mm -hmm. There's a guy there by the name of Steve Chu that is doing biophysics. And for the first time, he's analyzing DNA, but one single strand of DNA by catching the DNA strand uh, in an optical tweezer. Basically, you put it in an electric field so that you can stretch the strand and see how it behaves. And it's fascinating research. So I wrote to him directly. And my advisor's jaw dropped. He said, what? Steve too? I said, yes. Why? He said, you realize he just won the Nobel Prize? <laughs> and I was like, you know, I'm not shy by any means. I probably wouldn't have written such a casual email like, hey, I would love to work in your group. So I was uh, directly accepted to work in Steve Chu's group. And it was oh, wow. the opportunity of a lifetime. So, of course, I, I said yes, took the flight, went to Stanford. And it was incredibly challenging. Nothing came easy to me. And uh, But after six years, I was told that I became the first Mexican woman to get a PhD in physics from Stanford. Wow, congrats. That's amazing. This episode is brought to you by Super Data Science, our online membership platform for learning data science at any level. We've got over two and a half thousand video tutorials, over 200 hours of content, and 30 plus courses with new courses being added on average once per month. So all of that and more you get as part of your membership at Super Data Science. So don't hold off, sign up today at www.superdatascience.com secure your membership and take your data science skills to the next level. What an amazing story from um, the Brandeis University to Stanford and all the challenges. And I love the way you described it. It actually helps understand what uh, a somebody who's interested, like a, a female student who's interested in physics is actually going through emotionally and experiencing uh, it's uh, it's it's hard. It's really hard for like for me as a man to have uh, just like perceive it. But from your story, um, it's uh, it's I get a better sense for it. And it's of course it's terrible like all the uh, bias that you have to face along the way. Um, yeah, and so and now you have this mission of helping women get into STEM and be successful. Tell us a bit about that. How how. How do you help women get into STEM? Like, what, what, what are the some of the, um, I don't know, successes that you can share that you've had in this area? I have one success that I'm ex especially proud of. Her name is Graciela Garcia. Uh, I do a lot of workshops uh, from science fairs to helping initiatives like Technovation Challenge, where I help uh, uh, mentor some of the girls and develop. Technovation Challenge is an app uh, creating a competition that uh, takes girls from underserved backgrounds and, and uh, forms teams 
that get mentorship in three areas, how to program an app that can solve a problem in the community, two, how to create a business model around the app, and three, how to pitch that app to real business investors so that they can have a business model and make money out of the app. And I once went to a school to talk about Technovation Challenge here in New York, and there was this really, really curious girl by the name of Graciela. And she was very young and she was a little shy. But at the end of my workshop and my talk, she came up to me and you could tell that she wanted to do more and wanted to learn more about programming and and STEM and, and all that. However, she was undocumented in the U.S. And so her mother was very uh, weary of sending Graciela to uh, summer camps or after school programs because of their uh, immigration status. And so uh, Graciela had not really tested her um, her skills and, and her curiosity at, at pretty much nowhere. And I decided to take her under my wing. And I said, you have to come with me and I'm going to mentor you and we're going to have you succeed. So I mentor her and within one year, her team ended up winning the final international competition of Technovation Challenge. Wow. Uh, she became, after that, her uh, their app is called Arrive, which helps schools uh, and, no- and parents, notifies parents when uh, kids have arrived uh, at their school. Which I've is- seen that. I've seen that app, like a, a commercial for that app. That's really cool. Yes, because Google then intervened. Google is the one uh, that sponsored Technovation Challenge. And, and not only do they sponsor with the prize money, but they also help uh, with the development of the app, to the continuing development. And so she, she founded the Arrive app well, with her team. And now she's uh, graduating from University of Pennsylvania. She's the first person in her entire family to go to college this is an amazing score with a degree in computer science. And we've mm-hmm. done TV episodes together. We were interviewed by CNN and we've given talks together. And she's just this wonderful, eloquent uh, woman who is succeeding greatly. And she would be a great addition to any tech team uh, at any company. So that's yeah. that success I'm, I'm very proud of. But I continue to do uh, right now in July, I'm offering a summer camp for uh, girls ages 17 to 20 who are in college or right before going to college uh, on how to succeed in STEM. And we'll do a little bit of coding as well as uh, learning about imposter complex, how to be confident in certain situations in male-dominated environments, etc. That's one thing I'm doing, and I keep uh, uh, giving talks and, and running workshops all around the world for young women. Amazing. Uh, how can people find more about, uh, out more about this workshop? Oh, sorry, about the summer camp. Sure. Thanks, Kirill. Uh, so that's on my website. So my website is uh, the, um, sciencewithdebbie.com. That is science, S-C-I-E-N-C-E, with... Debbie is spelled D-E-B-B-I-E dot com. And I post everything there, my public speaking engagements, my workshops. I posted some resources about how to teach kids uh, of different ages, coding and uh, science-based approaches uh, during our challenging COVID lockdown. 
Yeah, fantastic. Really cool. Um, and uh, so yeah, sciencewithdebbie.com. Check it out if uh, if you would like to learn more about the summer camp or uh, workshops. And um, tell me, tell us a bit more, please, about uh, so inspiring women in STEM, right? It, for instance, if uh, how how can companies or uh, like how can companies take a next step? Like for instance. Um, what do you do in these workshops? How do you run a workshop? Like I'm, I'm assuming you come into a company or now maybe virtually and you explain how to uh, create an environment where women will feel comfortable and inspired and empowered to be successful in STEM. Tell us a bit about that. Maybe you can share some insights on this podcast for, for the business owners who are listening who might want to implement a few of these tips that you can share in their business already today or tomorrow. Absolutely. My expertise is in uh, not only helping individual women, but in creating policies at company levels that create an environment in which young women are more able to be promoted, uh, feel comfortable, come back after maternity leave and, you know, use their different uh, various skills uh, to create products that have a diverse um, a statistical pool uh, of opinions and feedback feedback uh, around them, especially data products. And so I help companies with all with all these functions. Uh, one piece of literature that I highly recommend uh, for uh, C-level executives and, and people even in HR positions at companies is uh, Carol Dweck's Mindset book. Carol Dweck is a psychologist at Stanford, and she basically came up with a framework that allows people uh, to see what are the tendencies uh, in women's biased education when it comes to STEM versus uh, men's education. So, for example, she talks a lot about the fixed versus uh, the growth mindset. A fixed mindset is uh, someone, and, 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 and let's already say this, that uh, typically she says women, young girls are educated with a fixed mindset, typically. And so a fixed mindset tells you that you have a specific amount of intelligence, that it cannot be stretched, it cannot grow, it's fixed. You're either uh, a B uh, grade person or an A plus or an A minus, and that's what you're going to be for the rest of your life. So you better, you know, just know it. it um, it's typically uh, told from the perspective uh, of people who have to pick a career based on their existing skills and not on their hopes to learn new skills. Uh, it creates uh, people, especially uh, young women, who are afraid to risk getting a bad grade because they always have to look like they are experts or they're trying their best. And so they're very conscious of not failing. Whereas men's education, a young man, is exactly the, op the opposite. It's the growth mindset, mm -hmm. which basically sets a framework of failure is cool. You should mm -hmm. fail because that's the way to learn. There isn't a fixed amount of intelligence. You can always become an expert at anything you want by failing and trying again and failing and trying again. So it creates uh, the mindset of people who are going to uh, sign up for things and experiment things that they're not already good at, like women. 
So a lot of more men want to experience, say, a, 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 an in, in introductory course in physics, because even though they have not tried it before, they're not afraid to get a, a lesser grade or to not feel like they're experts at it. Whereas women have been conditioned to have to look perfect. And uh, like Reshma Sajani always, uh, says with her book, uh, educate girls who are brave, not perfect because we are conditioned to appear and that's part of the problem. So why this is so important, Kirill, is because in science, failure and in technology is super important. Many results come out of failures. Many PhDs, many uh, discoveries are negative discoveries, meaning we discover that there's no magnetic monopole, for example. And mm. people spend their entire research careers researching, hoping to find the magnetic monopole, like, um, you know, like the electric. I was doing that back in my uh, bachelor's. Uh, I was trying to build a magnetic monopole myself. Oh, so wow. I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. yeah, I remember Blas Cabrera at Stanford. He, at one point, they thought they got a result and they discovered the magnetic monopole. Mm. He uh, contradicted and that was not it. But that failure... You know, he could consider, oh, I never found it, is actually a, a discovery that advances science greatly. Mm -hmm. And so it's data science, software engineering, it's all about trying and trying again. And, you know, it's not about uh, people who inherently know all the answers, quite the contrary. It's people who are very curious and are not afraid of failure. Those are the ones that succeed. And so I believe that if you and there are policies that support this sort of uh, um, game structure of people trying different things and not being punished for failure. If you're able to do that, and of course, I give very specific ways of creating policies uh, where women are able to take more risks without being scared of not earning a promotion or not, uh, you know, getting uh, certain. Um, places uh, at the company, if you do it in such a way that uh, women feel like they can uh, be um, sort of built up and supported by the company, then it, it creates a very successful environment. So I give specific advice to companies on how to create policies based on these framework of the growth mindset to allow for women to take more risks and participate and be stakeholders in projects that are more cutting edge and more uh, sort of at, at the R&D uh, stage uh, and, and part of a company. And that's a framework that I've used to, to a great uh, amount of success. Okay. Uh, could you give us like one, one tip of how uh, somebody, let's say I'm a, an executive of the company, What's uh, one thing I could already do today that will uh, encourage this uh, framework? Like basically uh, show uh, women that they are encouraged to uh, try and fail and, and keep growing and uh, experimenting and uh, progressing their career. Sure. Uh, so especially in data science. So for example, in software engineering, you have, because it's an older profession and it's been there for a while, things and the tools that you use are very well defined. So if after two weeks, for example, you come to your manager in, as a software engineer 
let's say your task was to create an e-commerce site and you know the tools to use and, and, and the, the stack and you develop. If you come after two weeks to your manager and you say, I have nothing to show for the past two weeks, then clearly that's considered a failure. But in data science, it's very, very different. Because if you come to your manager after two weeks of experimenting and doing what's called exploratory data analysis, and if you have nothing to show because your algorithms haven't worked, you haven't found the right tools, or you haven't found the right parameters, that's not a failure. So what I recommend is that each manager be educated in data literacy and in how to uh, promote different styles of management to know that, for example, there are projects in which, uh, you know, a, like I said, an experimental approach that's prone to failure is actually a good thing. And so to promote women to those positions where they get to experiment, but they don't get a manager who is disappointed because there's apparently nothing to show yet and, mm -hmm. and promote women and have the management uh, skill and style that lets them know that their experimenting is totally okay and that they're uh, you know, going to be um, sort of supported in coming up with the answers. So I think you know, that's a, the number one thing that uh, is like the low-hanging fruit because a lot of women are, because of what I explained before, very afraid of negative feedback and what are people going to say? I have to appear as I'm producing a lot and I have to work twice as hard as men to be respected and whatnot. And so immediately allowing them to work in projects where failure is not considered failure. I don't know how to say it. Where uh, you know, not having a result is not considered a failure, but part of the project. Mm -hmm. Exercising that muscle, doing it over and over again, allows women to grow and feel comfortable in this experimenting style of work, which is very much needed in quantitative fields. Wow, fantastic. Thank you. That's a great tip. And um from your experience, so you're senior senior data scientist at Metis, and we'll talk more about that in a bit. Um, from what your experience doing workshops and trainings in different companies on the topics of data science, uh, have you what have you noticed? Like, is uh, is the the problem of uh, women not being as uh, uh, like prevalent in the STEM fields? Is that uh, getting better in data science over time? Have you seen an improvement over the past couple of years? I definitely have seen an improvement from when I was growing up. I mean, there are uh, workshops and institutions that are specifically helping women, like Girls Who Code, Black Girls Who Code, Women Who Code, Our Ladies, Python Ladies. You know, there's tons of support in the community. Uh, having said that, we still experience that at executive level positions, it stops. There are very few women being represented. And what happens is that um, this is not something pertaining exclusively to women, but a lot of technical positions, what's called an IC, an individual contributor, people don't know how to grow and promote those positions. Like you, you kind of uh, go stale after 
arriving at a senior data scientist, for example. And from there, a lot of companies make you manage a team or going to management and completely uh, abandon the uh, field of you know, contributing uh, quantitatively to solving a problem. And so I think that um, at executive uh, levels, you need to give uh, women more responsibility and have paths of growth and of leadership that don't necessarily uh, diverge into management. That is, uh, career positions where uh, women can still be individual contributors and do technical work because they are good at it and they like doing it and they contribute to results that are quantitative in nature. So create that path, but all open up new promotion strategies and new uh, sort of ways of contributing to that ecosystem, whether it's in public speaking and being promoted by the companies, in evangelizing data products, etc. And so I think that's where we're still failing. And yet one more thing I want to say about this is that we're also failing young women because in these sort of um, in this race to make more women learn how to code and more minorities become proficient at coding and technical uh, knowledge, we are just teaching them to code for coding's sake. Meaning a lot of schools are like, oh, use Google's uh, one hour of code. And so we can all put a check mark in like our school is teaching how to code. But I had an experience that was actually pretty sad. I went to the Museum of Natural History here in New York, and there were high school girls learning SQL and how to uh, manipulate databases that contained knowledge about the museum as uh, animals. For example, there was a group of high school girls that were proficient that had been analyzing the museum's turtles. Uh, data about the turtles. There was another group analyzing the birds and other. Groups were analyzing whales and ocean um, uh, creature data. So I went to the group of girls that was way more proficient at SQL than I had ever been, you know, in, at, at that age. And so they were very, very smart girls, very curious. And I just said, let me look at the data that you have. And I asked a very simple question. There was a column there about the turtles. And it, it was called, the column was weight. So they had numbers in the column, like 130 and 300 and 250. And so I asked them, oh, so you've seen the turtles in the museum? They said, yes, yes, yes. I said, oh, how big are they? They're like, oh, they're, they're tiny. Actually, they fit in the palm of my hand. I said, oh, wow. So is that weight in pounds? What, what are the units? Is it in kilograms? You know, is it in grams? What is it? And they're like, you know, all like stunned because they had not stopped to think about the data that they were manipulating with ease for the past three months. Mm -hmm. So finally, one girl raises her hand and she says, oh, I'm pretty sure it's pounds. I said, oh, wow, that's pretty mm -hmm. because, you know, I'm I weigh about, uh, I don't know, 130 pounds or so. And look at my size. You're telling me a little tiny turtle that fits in the palm of your hands and weighs 300 pounds. That doesn't make sense. <laughs> so eventually we discovered and we went back that it, the units were grams, right? But these, these 
to me, signaled a wider problem that is pervasive. And that is in our race to very quickly get people to program and learn the basics of coding, we're forgetting what we're coding for. We're forgetting that coding is just a tool, but it, it has to be a tool for something else. And the most important thing in quantitative fields like data science is understanding and having critical thinking skills, having people who are able to solve problems. And I think remembering that and giving more workshops about critical thinking, not just about the skills and the tools, is something that we need to do immediately at the, the um, high school and middle school level. Hmm. How can a individual data scientist foster creative thinking skills in themselves? I give workshops on, on how to foster uh, critical thinking skills. And I think the answer is in um, kind of like what little kids do in asking lots of questions about the data, about the sources of the data. What are the goals of analyzing this data? Are they, what are the actions that a company is going to take based on the insights that come out of analyzing this data? Um, who wants, uh, who has, who's really a stakeholder and for what reason? Is it an ethical approach that I'm using or am I biasing my, well, we're always going to use statistical samples that are biased in some way or another, but am I making an effort to make it, you know, less biased towards certain groups? Am I, um, you know, am I using this for a certain purpose? when it, it could be used for different uh, purposes. So there are a set of questions that should be asked of the data, of the company, of the agenda uh, that the, the C-level executives, for example, in a company have that allows people to think clearly about what the goals are for the different projects that get thrown at them. And they can become leaders in saying, we're not doing this right. We're actually forgetting um, and I'll give you concrete examples. There was an algorithm uh, in Facebook that failed because it was an image recognition algorithm that recognizes people in pictures. Mm -hmm. And it, it, it was not trained with enough um, Black people in the beginning. And so it would uh, mm -hmm. fail miserably with those groups. It was clearly very biased. And, and so that's something that should not happen in this day and age. There's another product, the soap dispensers, where you put your hand below them in airports and uh, public restrooms, and it dispenses a little bit of soap. So it turns out, and there are videos on YouTube showing this, it did not work well with dark skin because it was calibrated. The laser was calibrated for the con to, to recognize the contrast between a white skin hand and the dark background of uh the, the equipment. And wow. so, you know, this African-American person is trying and trying and trying and it's not dispensing soap. There's uh, also the discovery that the airbags uh, for safety that were built uh, for cars, the team, they were all, was all, um, there were no women in the team and it was all uh, white males of a certain size and age doing all the testing. And so the bags, a lot, a lot of women were having accidents and the airbag would either not inflate or would cause issues like choking and different uh, issues because their size 
the momentum that a typical uh, female body experiences were not taken into account. And so this is why um, I think uh, being a critical thinker is like, how can I include a, a really wide um, base of users in my testing? How can I uh, make my algorithm work for different instances and how am I biasing the data? All these questions are super important for mm -hmm. uh, critical thinking. Wow, fantastic. Thank you. That's uh, uh, some great examples as well as advice on how to be a better critical thinker. Um, I'd like to shift gears a bit and talk about um, your data science work. So you're the chief data scientist at Metis. Um, you've been at Metis for almost five years, which is very exciting. Uh, tell us a bit about the work that you do, Lee. Sure. So as a chief data scientist, um, since uh, Medis' inception, I was in charge of developing curriculum for our boot camps uh, that are intensive uh, workshops or boot camps that take people from very little knowledge of both programming and the mathematics and, and data science all the way to becoming proficient enough to get jobs in data science. I checked mm. for what were the new tools that were being used. For example, D3 for visualization was no longer uh, being used. And so, you know, what could we teach instead for visualizing graphs, etc.? cetera. Uh, I, I was in charge of managing the team, day-to-day uh, -day activities of 16 uh, senior data scientists. I'm no longer in charge of the operational uh, management. Uh, I'm now more in charge of the thought leadership. So getting all our instructors to be public speakers, to participate in the ecosystem of data science conversations out there. Uh, I also uh, worked in developing new programs outside of our boot camps. So I, uh, um, I managed the relationship with Dublin Business School, for example. We created a machine learning course that was specifically for their master's in analytics program. I talked to various uh, corporate um, institutions that wanted a corporate training type of offering. And so this is what I, I do more uh, now, which is uh, more related mm. to taking the data science content and shaping it in such a way that it can be uh, applicable and it can fit uh, different institutions depending on their needs. Mm. Wow, fantastic. And what uh, would you say, is there like a, a golden formula that you have on how to pick the right curriculum for your team or for even yourself if you're trying to learn data science? I think there's a whole discovery process because in data science, there's sort of three things and in data literacy that I think are important. Data, the product, and the techniques. Most people are getting this wrong. A lot of companies have a ton of data and they don't know what to do with it. So they don't know what tools. Should I hire people to build tools from scratch? Should I use uh, open source tools or should I have proprietary tools? Uh, you know, if you're a large company and you're uh, concerned with auditing and compliance, you definitely uh, will probably need uh, more um, proprietary tools. Uh, and then techniques, like what should I, should, you know, should I hire an expert in deep learning or do I only need someone to automate Python scripts to do this mm -hmm. job? And so to have the three aligned 
and serve the entire company is what I call true data literacy. And that takes a whole conversation uh, with the company. So we um, have figured out that when we go to companies and the people asking us for a workshop or for a particular training are not aligned with the people receiving the training, then all hell breaks loose, right? Because the executives are paying for the training, but they have no idea what the problems, issues uh, are of the stakeholders that are using the company's data. And so these people are the ones that are going to take the training. And if they have no idea why they're taking it and what are the goals, is it, you know, faster uh, algorithms or is it, you know, a different data product that I'm supposed to build? And so there's a lot of confusion here. So our discovery process initially with every company that we speak to is, I would say, the most important phase, because if you don't have the right tools uh, but have the right people, the project will fail. If you have don't have the data, but have the right tools, then the project will likely fail and so on. So you need to have these three uh, things aligned for a project to really be successful. Mm-hmm. Amazing. That's, that's, that's really good advice. And um, I guess for an individual data scientist, the takeaway here is that if your company is designating certain training to you or um, you have available training that you know your whole team is going through or something like that, I always ask the question, is this something you really need? Is this, is this you know, maybe the person that has assigned this training it doesn't really know the problems that you're working on? Yes. This is an analogy from physics. And physicists are very proud people. And we always pride ourselves in using economy of mathematics. By that, I mean, if you can write an equation in shorter and shorter ways and in more elegant ways, then it's definitely better. Mm -hmm. If it has the same explainability and encompasses all the different uh, use cases that you should use a formula for. And so I think that should be a learning thing for data scientists. If you can analyze these data with a simpler algorithm, why not do that, right? So many times uh, without critical thinking, we think, oh, let's uh, kill an ant with a cannon. This is uh, a saying we have in in Spanish, right? Like we don't want to do that. We want to use the right tools to solve the right problem. So if I'm tasked with solving a a data-driven problem, then I should absolutely uh, first do exploratory data analysis and see, okay, this data, I can just do a a linear regression and it may work and so on. So so these are the different uh, things that people should think about when being tasked with analyzing a project. Mm -hmm. What's the most uh, common training requests that you get from companies? It varies quite a bit, but I would say um, it's more on the simpler. Uh, you would think people are asking us for deep learning or, you know, quite sophisticated training. The reality is that very few companies are stuck there or or see a great value in that. And I'm talking obviously 
you know, the companies that do see great value in deep learning are typically very large established companies that have already internal teams doing deep learning. I by no means meant, I know it sounded like I was saying they're not, um, you know, fruitful algorithms. Quite the contrary, they're giving us, you know, incredible uh, visual recognition things. But typically those are uh, companies that have ingrained in them a data science practice. Uh, the companies that are seeking help from us in training are companies companies that don't yet know what kind of team uh, to build. Should, should I upgrade the skills of my software engineers, for example? Should I, should I make tools like uh, Tableau available to my HR and, and, and sort of uh, more junior level analysts so that they can also help? Uh, interpret the data and gain insights. And so I, I always say that the best tools are the ones that people don't even realize that they're using these very sophisticated tools, but it's giving them the data that they need at a time that they need it and in a way that's easily uh, usable uh, mm. for them. And And so that's the type of help that we're asked. Like, how can we... Uh, you know, should I automate a Python script so that my analysts don't have to spend four hours loading uh, the stock market data onto Excel? That's mm -hmm. one example. Another one could be, uh, you know, how can I make uh, the process of analyzing um, product recommendation for my e-commerce site uh, faster and more efficient? What kind of recommendation algorithms uh, can I build and how can I test uh, different parameters in, in a way uh, that's efficient and it's not going to consume uh, all the time of my uh, data science team. Things like mm. that where it's at, at, a, at a more uh, sort of simpler level than mm. help me with my well-tested five-year running uh, deep learning algorithm. Gotcha. Tweak a little bit to make it even more efficient. Gotcha. So, and then you have all this content inside Metis, and then you find all right, what's the right content for this client? Structure the learning program, and uh, off off you go. Yes. Not only do we have great intro courses like uh, Intro uh, to Python and the Mathematics for Data Science, we have a data literacy um, coursework. We also are able to customize different products depending on the needs of the company. And we're able to do that because our uh, expertise lies in many different areas and our instructors come from various backgrounds. They, a lot of them have PhDs in certain uh, specific areas. And so we, uh, at this moment, are still able to offer, you know, pretty tailored um, data processes for companies that require something mm. of their uh, processes to to do well what's the difference uh what's the percentage in demand for um either in person or virtual instructional training versus on demand training where do you see what is more popular where it's it's led by an instructor whether it's virtual or in person or where it's uh, pre-recorded videos that the company can uh you know assign to their employees which which is more popular i would say definitely uh, on demand one, the asynchronous content and just 
sort of giving them videos and explaining the, the skills and the tasks to do is successful to a certain extent, but over the long run, it's a little bit like Coursera and these online courses. Like if you don't assess the level of skills uh, that was gained by the training, then it's very difficult to know if your investment in had a good ROI, right? Or had a good return and the people actually ended up doing it. So you need to have some contact with uh, the, the team that's being trained, either in person or virtual, but definitely that mentorship and that, uh, you know, continuous assessment of the increase in their specific skills is very, very uh, useful. And I would say essential for a true uh, data literacy progress in a company. Wonderful. Thank you. And you have a really cool case study, which is publicly available. I think it's the CMA. Uh, would you mind sharing that with us, please? Sure. CMA is a, a boutique consulting firm. And I just shared an article on LinkedIn. Uh, you can search uh, with my name, Deborah Berevicius, and you can read the article on data literacy. And basically, I talk about the wrong ways of doing uh, data literacy at a company and the right ways. And CMA is an example of the right way to do it. Because basically, they first had internal talks where the whole company, C-level executives, HR people, analysts, uh, you know, junior people were aligned in the goals of having a data science practice. The wrong way uh, done by many companies is, like I said before, bringing in a team of data science trainers uh, to a situation where there's no communication and no alignment between the people who purchase the training and the people who are receiving the training. CMA was very well aligned. And so uh, the stakeholders of the data we're at each level and in each branch of the company. And so they all knew why they were taking the data science training. They all knew what they were expected to learn from it and what the goals were in the end, either saving time, saving money for the company or creating uh, you know, more efficient uh, algorithms and whatnot for the different areas that they do consulting on. So I would say um, that was a, a great example of uh, how you need internal buy-in before you go ahead and say, hey, let's get some people to train us on how to do data science. Not really having talked in deep terms with the teams that are actually using the data. The other thing that was successful is that at every level, people had the right skills and the right tools to gain insights that were useful for their particular uh, job function. And, and that's really good because, you know, you're not going to give, say, an HR person that is not attracted by mathematics and statistics and programming, you know, you're not going to give them open uh, source code to, you know, be working with. But you may give them Tableau or some other platform that simply outputs the right insights that they need at the right time so that they can do their job better. Uh, and you are, at the same time, you're going to give the sophisticated data scientists that are uh, doing your R&D at the company, you are going to give them the full uh, stack of tools to, to be able to uh, advance the uh, efficiency and expertise of the company. 
Mm. Wow, that's that's really cool. And what kind of results did uh, CMA experience after this these trainings? Well, from what uh, we've heard from them is that they were able to automate certain things that previously took them a long time. They actually had more integration across teams because now they spoke uh, data-driven language in common. So they were able to have metrics of success that were predefined. And now everyone was able to say, to, to know what those typically jargon words mean. Like what, you know... Uh, What's a turnover and, and what's a, a recommendation as rate of success and uh, things like that. And so now that people had the right words and the right tools, obviously, uh, you know, being presented on screen in, in different ways and at different levels, now they were able to communicate across teams much more efficient, effectively too. Mm-hmm. Efficiently wow. and effectively. Yeah. <laughs> really cool. Very, very exciting. Um. Thank you for sharing that. That's a great uh, example of a success and also contrasts that to when people don't know why they're learning something and why they're doing certain things. Um, to finish off, I wanted to ask you about how you see the future of data science. So what, what, uh, from what you've seen in uh, this industry and through your personal experiences, what do you think we should be looking forward to or anticipating in data science in the next, let's say, five years? I think this field has been trying for a very long time to define itself (laughs) and unsuccessfully. So you as a data scientist, let's start with software engineering. You as a software engineer will probably end up doing something quite similar if you get hired by two different companies. Yes, the details may change and the tools may change, but it's pretty well defined what you know your uh, skills are and what your tasks um, should be. However, a data scientist is still a pretty undefined field. That is, if you get hired by Facebook as a data scientist and then graduate on to work at a hedge fund to do data science, what the title data scientist means at these two very different companies is something completely different. And you're going to end up having different goals and different tools and different kinds of data to use that requires uh, different expertise and and very different skills. And so what companies are realizing is that uh, they need to really learn into how to um, categorize the skills of data scientists. Maybe, you know, someone is certified in um, classification kind of algorithms. Another person does uh, deep learning. So what I expect in the future is for more uh, well-defined skill set and um, applications to the the specific algorithms in the field. So you're going to be able to have commoditized products, very much like Tableau and other uh, products that are going to be uh, much more widely available for people who are not uh, data scientists, per se, the technical people. And then you're going to have special fields uh, of data scientists that are going to continuously develop uh, tools that are more advanced 
for various other uh, skill sets and uh, purposes at a company. And those are going to be different silos that are going to be very separate and very different one from the other. So when you see job postings, you're no longer going to see senior data scientists. You're going to see uh, senior data scientists focused or with experience in um, NLP, for example, and in natural language processing. And that's going to be a very specific skill set. Uh, and people are going to also uh, specify by uh, the field, right? What's called um, uh, the expertise or, or the, the you know, being well-versed in a certain topic. So people who have worked with health data have acquired certain knowledge about the parameters and the, the, the way they look at the data that's quite different than people who are used to working with numbers in Wall Street and, you know, at hedge funds. Mm. And so you're going to see much, many more silos and a more uh, a wider acceptance of uh, using the tools that are available for you know everyday uh, data uh, driven insights mm, interesting so in terms of silos it's going to be like kind of the first example that comes to my mind is marketing for instance in marketing you might be like a a marketing specialist uh, might be in with experience or expertise in the uh, affiliate marketing versus email marketing versus paid advertising versus content and SEO. There's four different areas, and with a background in, as you say, um, uh, retail or SaaS or B two B or whatever else. My question is, and I can see how that's that's a very valid point because, like, maybe twenty, thirty years ago, that wasn't that de delineation; those silos weren't, silos weren't there. Uh, my question is, for data science and for data scientists, are silos good or bad? Uh, they're bad. In, well, they're good because they they define the boundaries of uh, you know, and and they have a a more they have more clarity in aligning the goals of that team and uh, within a company of that silo. In that sense, they're good because a lot of data scientists feel frustrated that they go on to do something really sophisticated, but they lack the domain expertise in something else. And, you know, their uh, insights are not being used. Uh, so they go to a lot of work is sort of being wasted. Uh, they're bad in the sense that interdisciplinarity and cross-referencing various types of algorithms and, and domain knowledge, like applying something uh, from the insurance field into healthcare, you know, is could be incredible. And, and so silos are always bad for those kinds of aha moments. So what I think is going to happen is at the, the more... Uh, sort of everyday level, the silos are going to be uh, more defined. But at the R&D level, there's going to be a separate uh, lab, so to speak, where people are going to be testing new things, you know, cross-pollinating uh, different areas and different domain expertises and seeing the algorithms that are applicable to various uh, fields and whatnot. In fact, I predict that with the ubiquity of Internet of Things, that is of sensors, and the data that's coming from sensors, I mean, we're producing more data in two days than we used to produce in analyzing the sky or, uh, you know, the Large Hadron Collider uh, 
uh, subatomic collisions in, in years. And so all these data that's coming from sensors, uh, we're going to also learn new tools of how to um, refine the way in which we select the information that is useful from the one that is not useful. And uh, that's going to bring uh, a more uh, engineering automation of tools that are going to continuously select information that with practice and with years of experience we already know uh, we, we need in order to get, gain insights. And companies are not going to store, like now, all the data just because we don't know when we might need it. So that's going to be discarded. And then the, the relevant data is going to be uh, put into production line. Wow, that's a um, really fantastic description and uh, one of the most, probably one of the most uh, vivid, um, that was probably one of the most vivid descriptions of the future of data science I've heard on this podcast. Thank you so much. It's ex extremely exciting. Um, yeah, on that note, uh, we've come to an end slowly of this uh, episode. Thank you so much for being here today. And uh, I would like to ask, uh, where's the best places for our uh, listeners to find you and follow your career or maybe engage with some of the work that you're doing, whether it's in um, data science or in inspiring women in STEM? Thank you, Carol. I always love when people reach out, so please do so. Um, you know, you can be curious about anything and I always love to converse and, and form intellectual, uh, friendships. So, so it's, it's, it's great, uh, when I hear from, from people who are curious. So I co-host a TV show with the discovery channel that's called outrageous acts of science. You can watch all of our past episodes of 11 seasons on iTunes, Amazon prime, and I believe YouTube you can catch up with me directly through following me on Twitter. My handle is Debbie Bere, D-E-B-B-I-E, and then B as in boy, E-R-E, -E, the Debbie Bere, the first four letters of my last name. I'm on Instagram. I'm on Facebook. Uh, I have a, a public page on Facebook, so you can follow uh, you know, all my workshops and what I do. And of course, in my website, I have a direct email that you can use info at sciencewithdebbie.com and you can communicate with me and, and we can figure out how we can work together. Fantastic. And is it okay to connect on LinkedIn as well? Oh, yes. Sorry, of course. LinkedIn is wonderful too. Please connect with me there. Fantastic. Uh, wonderful. Well, thank you very much, Debbie. It's, uh, it's been a huge pleasure having you on the show and uh, best of luck with your TV shows and all the amazing things that you're doing, especially the mentoring of women in STEM. It's been a great discussion thank you thank you Kirill have a great rest of the day so there you have it everybody thank you so much for being here for spending this hour with us I hope you enjoyed this podcast as much as I did and got lots of valuable takeaways my favorite part of this podcast was the future of data science and what uh, Dr. Deborah Bervicious said about silos and how they will eventually form in the industry as it matures and the benefits and the drawbacks of having these silos i think it's something something new that i haven't heard before on this podcast a very vivid description of the future that's coming and something definitely to look out for so uh we're quite lucky to be in this industry when the silos are not formed and experience it this way and then also experience it once the silos have been formed in the, probably the next decade or so 
And in addition, of course, uh, the very first uh, half, the first half of this episode was extremely important in terms of helping promote um, equality and inclusiveness in the space of data science and in general uh, fields in science, technology, engineering, mathematics. Uh, I hope it was useful to become more aware of what's going on in this space. Definitely Deborah's personal story was very inspiring to hear. And I think we all should do as much as we can to make this space as inclusive and as uh, encouraging and inspiring to absolutely everybody who wants to be part of it. And on that note, as usual, you can get all the show notes for this episode at superdatascience.com slash 377. That's superdatascience.com slash 377. There you can find the transcript for this episode, plus any materials we mentioned on uh, this show, any links, URLs, uh, where to connect with uh, Dr. Berevicius, and all the other amazing things that you may have uh, heard on the episode and you're looking to find they'll be there and one final thing i'd like to ask of you today is if you know somebody who's a female in data science or who's just part of a minority in the space of data science please send them this episode this is a very exciting story a uh, inspiring story of a person who went through all these uh, biases and challenges and troubles and still was able to be successful in STEM and build a career and help inspire others and pass on the torch. So this is your opportunity to help inspire somebody else. So if you know someone, um, then send them this episode. Very easy to share. Uh, just send them the link, superdatascience.com slash 377. And uh, you might actually change somebody's life by doing that. On that note, thank you so much for being here today and sharing this time with us. I look forward to seeing you back here next time. Until then, happy analyzing.